0: My name is Ed Thompson, and thank you for uh, arriving timely. I have the pleasure of introducing Paul Starr for this lecture. By way of introduction, I'd like to review for a few moments some of the uh, American history of health care. 1798, the Act for the Relief of the Sick and Disabled Seamen marked the beginning of the federal involvement in health care. About a half century later, 1854, President Franklin Pierce vetoes the National Health Bill on the basis that it would unconstitutionally regard health as anything but a private matter which government should not be involved. Beginning in the early part of the 20th century, President Theodore Roosevelt campaigned as a progressive party candidate on the platform calling for a single national health service. And since then, virtually every president has advocated for some form of national health care. For example, in 1935, the Social Security Act provided pensions and other benefits for the elderly, was signed by President Roosevelt, Delano Roosevelt, Franklin D., National Health was left out, however, of the final Social Security bill because of his observation of the opposition from mostly the Democratic group in organized medicine and its allies. It was Paul Starr's award-winning history of American medical practice entitled The Social Transformation of American Medicine that I learned that FDR had been planning to push the healthcare care coverage as part of Social Security but died before he could get it through. It was also in this book that I finally understood the 1943 Wagner Murray Dunhill bill and its call for cradle to grave additions to the Social Security Act, including the national insurance measures. The bill never came to Congress for a vote. President Truman in 45 recommended a national health plan. The Roosevelts and Truman were not alone in 52. Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower campaigned for a national health insurance in 65. Lyndon Johnson signed into law the landmark uh, federal health insurance programs known as Medicare Medicaid. In 71, Senator Kennedy offers an outreach health plan. In 74, Nixon proposes a comprehensive health insurance plan. In 93, Clinton proposes the most comprehensive and ambitious reworking of the health care system since Medicare and Medicaid. And finally, in 2010, the Democrats, through a very clever strategy of employed proletarian maneuvers, enabled the passage of what is called the Obama plan. What Congress passed last March... Is far from a universal healthcare system and is very different from the government funded coverage of nations like Canada, Britain, Germany, France, and others. Today we have really the opportunity to listen to Paul Starr address us on a uh, topic called Moralities in Conflict How Healthcare Became So Hard of a Problem in America. Professor Paul Starr is uh, Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton University and co founder and co editor of the American Prospect. At Princeton, he holds the Stewart Chair of Communications and Public Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School. Professor Starr was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction, the Bancroft Prize in American History, the C. Wright Mills Award in Sociology for his 1982 The Social Transformations of American Medicine. He published the second book on the same topic entitled The Logic of Healthcare Reform and was part of the Clinton efforts to rethink healthcare issues. It's an honor to introduce Paul Starr to you, and to have Paul Starr at the College of the Holy Cross. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Ed. The conflict over health care in the United States is as old as a century and as fresh as today's headlines. I want to talk to you today about some of the reasons why this battle has been so persistent in the United States, why we have been fighting about health care for a century in a way that is different from any other Western society. The United States stands out in many ways. And one of those ways is that we have had the most virulent battles over health care of any of the great Western democracies. We've left, as you know, a a large number of people without health coverage, just over 50 million, according to the last count. And we spend a great deal more on health care than do other countries. Uh, We spend, according to the latest numbers, more than 17% of the gross domestic product on health care, compared to an average of 9% of GDP among the other rich countries in the world. And what is... I think especially puzzling about this to me from the way I look at it is I I first began studying healthcare in the early 1970s when Richard Nixon was president. At that time, we had about half the number of uninsured that we have today. The levels of spending in the United States were a bit higher, but not all that much higher than countries like Sweden and Denmark and most of the Western European countries. And at that time, in the early '70s, when Nixon was president, we almost resolved this conflict over health care on a bipartisan basis. At that time, it seemed that both parties agreed that we needed to provide health coverage for all American citizens. There was just a disagreement about how it was going to be done, but we were going to solve that problem well, four decades have gone by and what is amazing, in retrospect, is that we really we didn't expect it was going to get worse. We, th- we thought things were going to get better. And decade by decade, the number of uninsured has grown. The costs have grown. And instead of resolving this problem on a bipartisan basis, we have continued to have the most rancorous debates about health care of any country in the Western world. How has that happened? Uh, why is it that... In the United States, public responsibility for the cost of health care generates such bitter conflict. That's, that's really the central problem of uh, a book that I've been working on. And I, I really am grateful for the opportunity to be able to come here and talk to you about it and to uh, share with you some of the ideas I have on this subject and to perhaps get some responses and uh, your, your thoughts on these questions. The ideological warfare over health care that's been going on lately has its antecedents in the battle over health insurance that took place in the first half of the 20th century in the United States. It was really in that period that the U.S. departed from what became the standard path in other Western countries, which did provide general systems for financing health care. And then when the United States finally adopted critical tax and health financing policies in the period after World War II, we ensnared ourselves in what I call a policy trap by devising what became an increasingly costly and complicated system that has satisfied enough Americans and so enriched the healthcare care industry that it's become very difficult to change. We kind of got ourselves into this by the half measures that we took in that early post-war period. Now escaping from this policy trap has become a politically treacherous national imperative. And hoping to make it less treacherous to find more support in the center recent Democratic plans and legislation have called for building on and expanding private insurance, which used to be the core element of the Republican proposals, back, for example, in the days of Richard Nixon. And the most ambitious of those efforts, as you know, under President Clinton came to grief, and then, 16 years later, the supporters of health care reform thought they had finally reached a resolution of this problem, with the passage in 2010, just last year, of the patient protection, and affordable care. But it doesn't really appear that that legislation has resolved anything. The conflict goes on, and the opponents of the law may very well prevent the major provisions of that law from being carried out before they're scheduled to go into effect in 2014. So, the historical origins of this struggle go back to the defeat of those early proposals in the first half of the 20th century. There were three major campaigns, one right around the time of World War I, another during the New Deal under President Roosevelt, and then in the late 1940s under President Truman. And the failure of those efforts, this is I think where we took the key turn, the failure of those efforts led to a series of compromises that benefited different groups uh, to varying extent. So right after World War I, Congress established a separate hospital and medical system for veterans. And in the 1940s and 50s, the federal government established a system of tax benefits for people with employer-provided health insurance. And then in 1965, Congress adopted Medicare for the elderly, and it established Medicaid for certain categories among the poor, not for all poor people, but for some poor people. And then there were also a variety of other federal and state programs that targeted particular diseases, particular kinds of problems. And... Nonetheless, millions of other people got left out, just fell through the cracks. So in the early 70s, we had about 10 to 12% of the population uninsured. Now it's up to 16.7% uninsured. And I just want to emphasize in talking about that, that's, that's, that's about 50 million people, but that's at any one time. Over the course of a year, about 50% more people, about 75 million people, lose their health insurance coverage for some period, some period during a year. And then actually, if we look back over a decade, the Treasury Department did a study of this, looking at the period from 1997 to 2006, and found that actually almost half of the non-elderly population, 48%, lost health insurance coverage for some period during that decade. In other words, about half the population didn't have health insurance that was absolutely secure. They, they lost, people went through a spell of unemployment for one reason or another, they had no health insurance. And so as a result of the, and there are lots of other problems with health insurance, not just losing insurance entirely, but not having very good insurance that actually covers most of the costs. And so as a result of all these limitations, Americans have confronted forms of economic insecurity that are virtually unknown in other countries. Medical uninsurability, medical bankruptcy, job lock. These are distinctly American problems that people in Canada or Britain or France don't run into because they don't have systems that work like ours. During the last 40 years, the US also became an outlier in healthcare costs. Uh, We're now spending in dollar terms two and a half times per capita as much as the average of other rich countries. Now, when I say rich countries, by the way, these are the countries that are in the OECD, the Organization of Economic and Cooperative Development, that compiles data about the, these are the wealthy capitalist countries of the world. Now, since health expenditures vary directly with national income, you would expect the United States to spend more than the average. But we actually spend 42% more than the national income of the United States predicts. In other words, if you looked at this, if we did a nice regression analysis, what we'd see is that the United States is, is off the charts. It's spending a lot more than you would expect, given the relative GDP of the United States compared to other countries. Variation in disease rates. Do not explain those higher expenditures in the United States, yeah, we have higher obesity rates, but on the other hand we 're lower on other things and When you look at this, it doesn't the underlying disease burden of the population is not the explanation for the higher health care costs in the United States. In fact, you know, Americans actually don 't get more health care services they don 't actually see doctors more often they don 't spend more days in the hospital, they actually don 't get more tests that contradicts what a lot of people think. The big difference between the United States and other countries is not volume, it's price. We pay a lot more for drugs, medical equipment, doctor's visits, hospitals, and so forth. And high costs and spotty insurance inevitably lead to less access to care. So, I'm in a 2008 comparative study, of Americans with incomes below the median reported going without medical care or a prescription because of cost, compared to 24% of the comparable group in Germany, 18% in Canada, 9% in Britain. And despite the excellence of American medicine at its best, and no one doubts that, the US system did not show up all that well in international comparisons. So the World Health Organization, uh, did a uh, ranking on the basis of various quantitative measures of different healthcare systems, and it found it put the United States 37th among the countries in the world. Now, with all the many problems of America's healthcare system, why has it been so hard to change? Why? Well, there are three familiar lines of explanation that focus on. One, special interests, two national values, and three, the daunting complexity of the problems of health care and health policy. And I wanna go through these each in turn to evaluate them. Now, the special interests that many people have in mind are the pharmaceutical and insurance companies, the doctors, the hospitals, all the different groups that make a living out of health care. The basic equation of health economics remains health care costs equal healthcare care incomes. Right? Every dollar spent on healthcare care is also a dollar that somebody else earns from healthcare care. and naturally, groups that earn a living from an industry don't want government policies that limit spending. Most businesses, of course don't want regulation by the government or competition from it, and Americans who make a living from health care are no exception. Physicians, in particular, have historically opposed any intrusion by the state into their professional terrain that threatens their income or autonomy. And during the past century, from especially from 1935 to 1965, organized medicine fought repeatedly against a government program for health insurance and as the healthcare industry has mushroomed the number of groups the number of economic interests has increased tremendously now, when the european countries adopted their systems of national insurance from the 1880s to the early 1900s healthcare was a tiny part of their economies probably about 2 or 3% of gdp now in the united states healthcare is of GDP. It's enormous, and the interests in healthcare are much more commercialized, they're much better organized, they are a formidable force. The opposition of the physicians and insurers in the first half of the 20th century was unquestionably a factor in blocking the adoption of those early proposals for government health insurance. But special interest influence is not as good as an explanation as it may initially seem for the persistence of the status quo. In recent decades, the major health care interest groups have not been uniformly opposed to measures that would cover the uninsured or to other reforms. Faced with political leaders and movements advocating expanded coverage, health care industry stakeholders have sometimes thrown their support to reforms that they see as beneficial, or at least as less distasteful than other alternatives. The special interest explanation for the status quo has another deficiency. It seems to imply that if not for special interests, the public would overwhelmingly welcome reform. But one of the legacies of American health policy is that it has split the interests of the public. The government has given generous tax benefits for private insurance to unionized workers and other employees of businesses that offer health benefits. Veterans have their medical system, the elderly and the disabled have Medicare, and some of the poor qualify for Medicaid. These members of what I refer to as the protected public may still be vulnerable to problems in paying for health care if their status changes, for example, if a worker loses a job, But they may worry less about that possibility than about the unknown risks of reforms that could upset arrangements that satisfy them reasonably well. The persistently uninsured are a mostly low-income population with no coherence, organization, or political power, even though they number about 50 million. In contrast, the protected public is not only larger, but also consists of highly organized and vocal groups. Moreover, And here we come now to the moral part of the story. Many of those who are reasonably well protected, veterans, the elderly, families of employees with good benefits, believe they have earned their coverage, whereas other people have not. And these moral perceptions contribute to the intense, often vituperative, tenor of public debates about health care. If political leaders favoring reform only had to deal with the healthcare industry interest groups. Reform wouldn't be easy, but it is all the more difficult because the partial measures of the past have attached the protected public to the status quo and given many people a moral argument against doing anything on behalf of the uninsured. Rising health costs and other problems with healthcare do not necessarily lead people to accept the need for change. On the contrary, if they have sound protection, they may cling to what they have all the more tightly and insist that they not be taxed to pay for anybody else. In short, the obstacle to reform is not just special interests in the narrow sense. The health care policies and institutions that were established in the mid-20th century have affected the public in a way, and led many people to believe that they've got their health insurance because they deserve it, They shouldn't be asked to pay for anybody else. Now, like the special interest account, the national values explanation for the failure to change the system has an immediate attraction. Americans, according to this argument, are more devoted to individual liberty than are people in other countries that have adopted universal health insurance. Not only are they individualistic, some people say they're deeply suspicious of the federal government above all, And no doubt there is something to that. There is a lot of suspicion of government in America. Though it's the anti-government attitude on the right that particularly distinguishes the United States from uh, many of the European countries. Conservatives in the United States have been far more anti-statist than conservatives in Europe. In fact, conservatives in Europe were often the ones who introduced their universal health insurance systems. By the way, it wasn't You may imagine there was always socialists, but that's not the case. It was, going back to Bismarck, it was often conservative leaders who instituted those systems. Yet, an explanation based on national values runs into difficulties. If the commitment to individual liberty shaped all of our institutions, a lot of things would be different in the United States. For example, laws and social practices might protect personal privacy a lot more strongly than they do in the United States. But in fact, protections of the privacy of personal data, for example, are stronger in Europe than in the United States. And during the past century, American courts have significantly downgraded rights to privacy under the Fourth Amendment. Where privacy rights have come into conflict with concerns about national security, privacy is lost out. Despite these developments, privacy advocates have had great difficulty mobilizing public support for their cause. Their appeals to individual liberty, in fact, to the vision of negative liberty, freedom from government, have been to little avail, despite the fierce devotion we supposedly have to individualism. Or consider education? Now, why isn't the phrase socialized education a part of the American political vocabulary? Well, public schools paid for through taxes, became established in the United States back in the 19th century when Americans were concerned, among other things, about those dangerous immigrants and the need to Americanize them. The legacy of those past choices shapes thinking about education today. Parents who want to send their children to a private school still have to pay taxes, however much they may resent it, to support a system of universal public education. To be sure, if Americans had to design an education system from scratch in the current ideological climate, public schools might not be the result, but that is the point. Institutional legacies shape how people apply their values to specific spheres. If we had had universal health insurance introduced in the 1850s, the way we had public schools, people would think totally differently about the subject today. American values also did not prevent the establishment of Social Security, Medicare, and many other programs that demand just as great a departure from traditions of self-reliance as does universal health insurance, Americans have found very ingenious ways to reconcile these programs with their values. So even as many say they favor self-reliance, they not only accept their Social Security and Medicare benefits, oh no, they they would be outraged if those were taken away. Moral values are complicated. Americans are egalitarian as well as individualistic. But in healthcare, as in many other areas, their values point in opposite directions. And people do not resolve their ambivalence just through quiet self-reflection political groups attempt to mobilize widely shared values on behalf of their positions. And especially when an issue festers for decades, political conflict often turns differences in values into well-worn scripts of warring ideologies. And that is precisely what has happened in health policy. During the early and mid-20th century, the organized medical profession and the insurance industry shaped a script for thinking about health care that elevated their cause from mere self-interest to larger concerns about freedom and the American way. And that interpretation had special resonance during the long American conflicts, first with Germany, and the Soviet Union, and then with Germany again, each of which could be successively identified with socialized medicine. And those battles, have left a legacy in the ideas and the language that American conservatives summon when they oppose proposals for government financing of health insurance. In the other rich capitalist democracies, conservative parties generally do not question the basic principle settled long ago in those countries that the cost of health care should be primarily a public obligation. It's not a controversial issue in, most, uh, you know, in the other Western countries. Only in the United States is public responsibility for health care costs equated with a loss of freedom. With equal passion, those who support broader government responsibility insist that leaving millions of people unable to afford health care is a grievous moral and political failure. At one-sixth of the economy, the interests at stake in health care are real enough but because Americans have raised choices about healthcare to a high ideological plane, the difficulties in negotiating change have become even greater. So to the third set of issues having to do with complexity. It's true the sheer complexity of the American healthcare system also sets it apart from the health systems of other countries. Now, not all countries with universal health coverage have a single governmental plan. But even those with multiple insurance funds, and actually the great majority of them have multiple insurance funds, typically have standardized rules regulating payment and other matters. In contrast, Americans pay for health care through a myriad of different private insurance plans and public programs, each with its own rules and its own paperwork. The resulting complexity... As an economic dimension, the administrative costs of American health care are far greater than the costs of other systems with more unified or standardized organization. That's one of the great ironies. You know, Supposedly, universal health insurance would bring more bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is much greater in the United States than it is in these other countries. The system's complexity also has a psychological dimension. Health insurance is mystifying to many of the sick and their families and complexity has a political dimension. The intricacies of healthcare finance and policy are hard for most people to follow. Some advocates of reform would like to sweep away all the many different private plans and public programs and institute a single governmental system, a single payer system, but that approach threatens to provoke interest group resistance, ideological opposition, and the anxieties of the protected public all at once seeking to avoid that kind of provocation, liberal reformers in recent decades have tried instead to build on and modify existing laws and institutions. But that approach necessarily makes their proposals complicated too, opening them up to misunderstanding and misrepresentation, uh, even to the suspicion that they have insidious provisions oh, death panels secretly buried deep inside them. Some features of the American health care system make it especially difficult for people to understand their own interests clearly. Now, if every family had to pay a lump sum bill every month for health care costs, for health insurance, the system's cost would probably not have grown to the present dimensions. But most of the employed don't make such a payment. The costs of health insurance are typically divided between an employer's share and an employee's share. And even the employee's share is usually taken out of your paycheck before you get it. And most people have no idea how much the employer's share is. Actually, I have no idea how much Princeton's share is of my total insurance bill. Because most employers, in fact nearly all employers, don't inform their employees how much they are paying into the insurance plan. You only know your share. So you you have no concept of what the total bill is. And most people do not understand that they're getting a tax subsidy because the employer's share is not counted as taxable income. And it's actually worth a lot. It's a huge subsidy to employees who are lucky enough to have insurance. Well, that whole system obscures from people the true costs. And so shielded from The full realities, people, I think, have a very difficult time assessing alternatives. Would this other alternative be more expensive or less You don't even know what it's costing you now. How can you make an accurate assessment of what the alternatives would be? In fact, because you don't know what a lot of the cost is, you may think every alternative is ridiculously expensive to what, what it is now. But that's because you haven't actually faced up. You haven't been made to face up to what the costs are. Because, by the way, just to clarify one point, economists agree that the employer's share ultimately comes out of the employee's income. I mean, it may look like the employer is paying for it. People may think, oh, the employer is paying, the company's paying for my health care. But in fact, the research indicates that over the long run, that is affecting your paycheck. Your paycheck would be higher. The employer is taking the total labor bill into account what is paid in cash, and what your benefits cost. And that affects decisions about employment, about hiring more people. So there's a tremendous amount of illusion that has been built into the system. Because of these choices that we've made in the past about taxation and about the way we pay, most of the public has very little understanding of what its true costs are. Well, to make matters worse, the discussion of health care takes place in a political environment low in trust. The complexities of health policy would not pose as great a problem for reform if the American public had confidence in American government, in American institutions. But confidence has been low for decades, and suspicions of malevolent intent are pervasive. While advocates of reform play on the distrust of private insurance companies, the opponents play on the distrust of government and of politicians. And low trust has usually, I think, been more of a problem for the advocates of reform because cynicism undermines the belief in public remedy that is essential to any popular movement for large-scale change. Each of the impediments to change that I've mentioned has been formidable in its own right. The interests, values, complexity, But they've been devastating in combination. American political institutions make innovation difficult. They've got a very strong status quo bias. But the barriers are especially large when reform has the potential to provoke so many different sources of interest group, ideological and popular opposition. That's the policy trap the United States worked itself into through the 20th century a deeply dysfunctional system that the country could not bring itself to change. And to escape from that trap would require artful and determined political leadership seizing opportunities created by a shift in underlying conditions. So when Democrats won control of both the Congress and the presidency in 2008, they saw a chance of breaking through this national impasse on health care. Finally, it seemed the United States was going to address the problems of the uninsured and rising costs after a calm, constructive, and reasonable national debate. Well, that's what we had. Uh, Shortly, there were grounds for optimism. For several years, the advocates of health care reform had patiently laid the groundwork for legislation, meeting with leaders of the major business and health care interest groups, to work out compromises that all parties could live with, still divided on key matters, some key matters. The reformers, the interest group leaders, and the Democrats had nonetheless arrived at a rough consensus on a model for reform that built on private employer-based health coverage and incorporated ideas for insurance exchanges, tax credits, and an individual mandate that a Republican, Mitt Romney, had championed here in Massachusetts. The hope was that if health care reform could move toward the center, it could attract enough support from Republicans and avoid the deadly combination of interest group and ideological opposition that had sunk every effort in the past. Compared to the systems of other democracies or the plans that liberals had advocated in the past, the proposals under discussion in 2007, 2008, called only for limited change, what I call in my book, minimally invasive reform. Yet while Democrats tried to adopt as mild a remedy as possible, mild is not how anyone could describe the reaction. To the opponents, it did not matter that the plan built on private employer-provided insurance and for tax credits and insurance exchanges to create a better functioning market so that individuals and small businesses could buy insurance on more favorable terms. It It was still a government takeover. Socialism, replete with those insidious secret provisions for death panels and euthanasia. Shortly before the Senate began debate on the legislation, Senator Orrin Hatch said, it's going to be a holy war. A holy war. In what other country would a debate about health policy be described as a holy war? It's just an amazing concept. But the tenor of discussion was actually in keeping with the moral and ideological character of earlier debates about health care. As in previous conflicts, symbols mattered more than facts. And a debate that began with a hope of compromise ended in anger and division. There was, however, one notable difference from earlier struggles over health care reform. This time, Congress actually did pass legislation. And that raises an obvious question. Why did health care reform pass in 2010 after being defeated on so many previous occasions, including the early 90s under Clinton? What was different? Well, American values had not changed in the interim. And neither the problems of health care nor the solutions had gotten any less complex. In fact, the Affordable Care Act is more than twice as long as the Clinton Health Security Act, which was so often ridiculed because of its length. The institutional obstacles in Congress had not lessened. Thanks to the routine use of the filibuster, the Senate has still been the graveyard of legislation. But some things were different. While Democrats in the early 1990s split into factions supporting different approaches to reform, by 2009, nearly all Democrats in Congress, as well as President Obama, agreed on the same model of reform. In fact, that very model that Massachusetts pioneered. And second, the consensus extended to most of the leading interest groups in healthcare. And that was really, I think, looking back over the whole course of this history, that was one of the most distinctive things about this past debate, about this uh, past legislative struggle compared to the earlier periods. By 2009, after several years of private discussions, the representatives of the hospitals, the doctors, and even the insurers and the pharmaceutical companies were ready to throw in their lot with the Democrats if the stakeholder groups could avoid provisions they regarded as deal-breakers. They'd come around to the view that the current framework of insurance was unsustainable. Insurance premiums had been growing four times faster than average earnings. Healthcare inflation was driving the price of insurance to so high a level particularly for people who bought coverage individually or through small businesses, that there was a danger of those markets going into a death spiral. As higher premiums led younger and healthier people to stop buying coverage altogether, the population continuing to insure would get older and sicker, and the cost of insurance would become prohibitive, and it would do severe damage to the industry itself. They reached that conclusion. They switched sides. If there's one thing you can point to that was different, this was it, their realization that the course was impossible to continue. Now, for the healthcare industry, reform offered a, a viable, stable alternative to the dismal scenarios for the status quo. In rough outline, the grand bargain that, for example, the insurers were ready to accept would require the companies to cover any applicant, regardless of pre existing conditions, at rates not based on the individual's health status, provided the government require everyone to be covered, subsidize those with low incomes, and meet various other conditions. in the end, the insurance industry did not get all its conditions met, and it it fought in the very last stages. But by and large, the other interest groups in health care were satisfied with the legislation, and they did support it. And that made a tremendous difference in being able to get it passed. But while the interest groups were willing to enter into a compromise, American politics had become far more polarized. The growing ideological divergence between the two parties made cooperation between them more difficult. By the same token, each party had become more homogeneous and therefore more capable of enacting legislation on its own. That is, if it had a majority in the House and 60 votes in the Senate, and that is ultimately how legislation passed in 2010. But the passage of reform was an uneasy victory. Uneasy because it was the victory of one party over a united opposition that threatened to repeal the legislation the first time it had the chance. Uneasy because many of those voting in favor had been obliged to accept compromises that they didn't like and thought could jeopardize the program's success. Uneasy because public opinion was sharply divided. Uneasy because the law's implementation was left to governors and state legislatures, many of which uh, oppose the law and are fighting it in court. Uneasy because really nobody could be certain that the law could withstand all the attacks on it and lead to a stable and popular outcome. The Affordable Care Act, like the Massachusetts reforms, could have been a bipartisan compromise in another era. Its roots lay in Republican proposals. And not only were Romney's reforms in Massachusetts the immediate precedent. The idea of providing tax credits for private insurance dates back to Republican alternatives to Truman's health plan in the late 1940s and to Republican alternatives to Medicare in the 1960s. The the 2010 legislation looks a lot more like Nixon's proposal in the early 1970s, and it does what Ted Kennedy was supporting at that time. The individual mandate was introduced in the early 1990s as a conservative idea. It was the central aspect of the Republican Senate alternative to the Clinton plan in 1993. When Romney introduced his proposal for mandate here in Massachusetts, he called the individual mandate, and I'm quoting him, Directly, this was in the Boston Globe, the ultimate conservative idea, which is that people have responsibility for their own care and they don't look to government. Now, of course, the individual mandate is the very epitome of excessive governmental power. Democrats hoped to find common ground with Republicans by adopting the means of reform that Republicans had advocated in the past. But at the national level, things had changed. Republicans no longer shared the goal of universal health coverage so that the concessions Democrats made were of no interest. Republicans responded to what they took to be the larger implications and meaning of the new policy. From their standpoint, regardless of what Democrats said, the proposed changes did amount to a government takeover because in the final analysis, the government would be responsible for seeing that people had health care And in the end, this is what our persistent struggle over health care is about. A century after the issue was first raised in the United States, we are still at odds over whether health care is a basic good that is a prerequisite for a free and good life, or whether health care is a good that people need to earn, and too bad if you can't earn it. That was not etched into the American character at the founding of the republic. It's the result of institutions that have taught many Americans that they have earned their access to health care, to the protection that they enjoy, and other people haven't. And because so many of us cannot agree to that view of health care, we are going to keep going at this conflict for a long time to come.